Chapter 18 of Four Day Planet by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Day Planet, Chapter 18 The Treason of Bish Ware. I wanted to find out who had been splashed, but Joe Kyvelson was too busy directing the new phase of the fight to hand out casualty reports to the press, and besides, there were too many things happening all at once that I had to get. I went around to the other side where the incendiaries had met their end, moving slowly as close to the face of the fire as I could get and shooting the burning wax flowing out from it. A lot of equipment, including two of the three claw derricks and a dredger, they'd brought a second one up from the waterfront, were moving to that side. By the time I had gotten around, the blowers had been maneuvered into place and were ready to start. There was a lot of back-and-forth yelling to make sure that everybody was out from in front, and then the blowers started. It looked like a horizontal volcanic eruption, burning wax blowing away from the fire for close to a hundred feet into the clear space beyond. The derricks and manipulators, and the cars and jeeps with grapnels, went in on both sides snatching and dragging wax away. Because they had the wind from the blowers behind them, the men could work a lot closer, and the fire wasn't spreading as rapidly. They were saving a lot of wax. Each one of those big sausages that the lifters picked up and floated away weighed a thousand pounds, and was worth, at the new price, eight hundred sols. Finally, they got everything away that they could and then the blowers were shut down and the two dredge-shovels moved in, scooping up the burning sludge and carrying it away, scattering it on the concrete. I would have judged that there had been six or seven million sols worth of wax in the piles to start with, and that a little more than half of it had been saved before they pulled the last cylinder away. The work slacked off. Finally, there was nothing but the two dredges doing anything and then they backed away and let down, and it was all over but standing around and watching the scattered fire burn itself out. I looked at my watch. It was two hours since the first alarm had come in. I took a last swing around, got the spaceport people gathering up wax and hauling it away, and the broken lake of fire that extended downtown from where the stacks had been and then I floated my jeep over to the sandwich and coffee stand and let down, getting out. Maybe, I thought, I could make some kind of deal with somebody like Interworld News on this. It would make a nice, thrilling feature program item. Just a little slice of life from Fenris, the garden spot of the galaxy. I got myself a big zoomy loin sandwich with hot sauce and a cup of coffee, made sure that my portable radio was on, and circulated among the firefighters, getting comments. Everybody had been a hero, Natch and they were all very unbashful about admitting it. There was a great deal of wisecracking about Al Devis buying himself a ringside seat for the fire he'd started. Then I saw Cesario Vieira and joined him. "'Have all the fire you want for a while?' I asked him. "'Brother, and how? We could have used a little of this over on Herman Rauch's land, though. Have you seen Tom around anywhere?' "'No, have you?' I saw him over there about an hour ago. I guess he stayed on this side. After they started blowing it, I was over on Aldivis's side. He whistled softly. Was that a mess? 
There was still a crowd at the fire, but they seemed all to be townspeople. The hunters had gathered where Joe Kyvelson had been directing operations. We finished our sandwiches and went over to join them. As soon as we got within earshot, I found that they were all in a very ugly mood. "'Don't fool around,' one man was saying as we came up. "'Don't even bother looking for a rope. Just shoot them as soon as you see them.' Well, I thought, a couple of million sols' worth of Talawax, in which they all owned shares, was something to get mean about. I said something like that. "'It's not that,' another man said. "'It's Tom Kyvelson.' "'What about him?' I asked, alarmed. "'Did you hear? He got splashed with burning wax,' the hunter said. "'His whole back was on fire. I don't know whether he's alive now or not.' So that was who I'd seen screaming in agony while the fireman tore his burning clothes away. I pushed through with Cesario behind me and found Joe Kyvelson and Mohandas Feinberg and Corkscrew Finnegan and Oscar Fujisawa and a dozen other captains and ship's officers in a huddle. "'Joe,' I said, "'I just heard about Tom. Do you know anything yet?' Joe turned. "'Oh, Walt. Why, as far as we know, he's alive. He was alive when they got him to the hospital.' "'That's at the spaceport?' I unhooked my handphone and got Dad. He'd heard about a man being splashed, but didn't know who it was. He said he'd call the hospital at once. A few minutes later, he was calling me back. He's badly burned, all over the back. They're preparing to do a deep graft on him. They said his condition was serious, but he was alive five minutes ago. I thanked him and hung up, relaying the information to the others. They all looked worried. When the screen girl at a hospital tells you somebody's serious, instead of giving you the well-as-can-be-expected routine, you know it is serious. Anybody who makes it alive to a hospital these days has an excellent chance, but injury cases do die now and then after they've been brought in. They are the serious cases. "'Well, I don't suppose there's anything we can do,' Joe said heavily. "'We can clean up on the gang that started this fire,' Oscar Fujisawa said. "'Do it now. Then, if Tom doesn't make it, he's paid for in advance.' Oscar, I recalled, was the one who had been the most impressed with Bish Ware's argument that lynching Steve Ravick would cost the hunters the four million sols they might otherwise be able to recover, after a few years' interstellar litigation, from his bank account on Terra. That reminded me that I hadn't even thought of Bish since I'd left the Times. I called back. Dad hadn't heard a word from him. "'What's the situation at Hunter's Hall?' I asked. "'Everything's quiet there. The police left when Hallstock commandeered that firefighting equipment. They helped the shipyard men get it out, and then they all went to the municipal building. As far as I know, both Ravick and Belcher are still in Hunter's Hall.' I'm in contact with the vehicles on guard at the approaches. I'll call them now. I relayed that. The others nodded. Nips Pazzoni and a few others are bringing men and guns up from the docks and putting a cordon around the place on the main city level, Oscar said. Your father will probably be hearing that they're moving into position now. He had. He also said that he had called all the vehicles on the first and second levels down. 
They all reported no activity in Hunter's Hall, except one jeep on second level down, which did not report at all. Everybody was puzzled about that. "'That's the jeep that reported Bish Ware going in on the bottom,' Mohandas Feinberg said. "'I wonder if somebody inside mightn't have gotten both the man on the jeep and Bish.' "'He could have left the jeep,' Joe said. "'Maybe he went inside after Bish.' "'Funny he didn't call in and say so,' somebody said. "'No, it isn't,' I contradicted. "'Manufacturers' claims to the contrary. There is no such thing as a tap-proof radio. Maybe he wasn't supposed to leave his post. But if he did, he used his head not advertising it.' "'That makes sense,' Oscar agreed. "'Well, whatever happened, we're not doing anything standing around up here. Let's get it started.' He walked away, raising his voice and calling, "'Pequod! Pequod! All hands on deck!' The others broke away from the group, shouting the names of their ships to rally their crews. I hurried over to the jeep and checked my equipment. There wasn't too much film left in the big audio-visual, so I replaced it with a fresh sound and visual reel, good for another couple of hours, and then lifted to the ceiling. Worrying about Tom wouldn't help Tom, and worrying about Bish wouldn't help Bish, and I had a job to do. What I was getting now, and I was glad I was starting a fresh reel for it, was the beginning of the first Fenris Civil War. A long time from now, when Fenris was an important planet in the Federation, maybe they'd make today a holiday, like Bastille Day, or the Fourth of July, or Federation Day. Maybe historians, a couple of centuries from now, would call me an important primary source, and if Cesario's religion was right, maybe I'd be one of them, saying, well, after all, is Boyd such a reliable source? He was only seventeen years old at the time. Finally, after a lot of yelling and confusion, the rebel army got moving. We all went up to main city level and went down Broadway spreading out side streets when we began running into the cordon that had been thrown around Hunter's Hall. They were mostly men from the waterfront who hadn't gotten to the wax fire, and they must have stripped the guns off half the ships in the harbor and mounted them on lorries or cargo skids. Nobody, not even Joe Kybelson, wanted to begin with any massed frontal attack on Hunter's Hall. "'We'll have to bombard the place,' he was saying. We try to rush it, and we'll lose half our gang before we get in. One man with good cover and a machine gun's good for a couple of hundred in the open. Bish may be inside, I mentioned. Yes, Oscar said, and even aside from that, that building was built with our money. Let's don't burn the house down to get rid of the cockroaches. Well, how are you going to do it, then? Joe wanted to know. Rule out frontal attack, and Joe's at the end of his tactics. You stay up here. Keep them amused with a little small arms fire at the windows and so on. I'll take about a dozen men and go down to second level. If we can't do anything else, we can bring a couple of skins of tallow wax down and set fire to it and smoke them out. That sounded like a pretty expensive sort of smudge but seeing how much wax Ravik had burned uptown, it was only fair to let him in on some of the smoke. 
I mentioned that, if we got into the building and up to main city level, we'd need some way of signaling to avoid being shot by our own gang, and got the wavelength combination of the Pequod scout boat, which Joe and Oscar were using for a command car. Oscar picked ten or twelve men, and they got into a lorry and went uptown and down a vehicle shaft to second level. I followed in my jeep, even after Oscar and his crowd let down and got out, and hovered behind them as they advanced on foot to Hunter's Hall. The second level down was the vehicle storage, where the derricks and other equipment had been kept. It was empty now, except for a workbench, a hand forge, and some other things like that, a few drums of lubricant, and several piles of sheet metal. Oscar and his men got inside, and I followed, going up to the ceiling. I was the one who saw the man lying back of a pile of sheet metal and called their attention. He wore boat clothes and had black whiskers, and he had a knife and a pistol on his belt. At first I thought he was dead. A couple of Oscar's followers, dragging him out, said, "'He's been sleep-gassed.' Somebody else recognized him. He was the lone man who had been on guard in the jeep. The jeep was nowhere in sight. I began to be really worried. My lighter gadget could have been what had gassed him. It probably was. There weren't many sleep-gas weapons on Fenris. I had to get fills made up specially for mine, so it looked to me as though somebody had gotten mine off Bish, and then used it to knock out our guard. Taken it off his body, I guessed. That crowd wasn't any more interested in taking prisoners alive than we were. We laid the man on a workbench and put a rolled-up sack under his head for a pillow. Then we started up the enclosed stairway. I didn't think we were going to run into any trouble though I kept my hand close to my gun. If they'd knocked out the guard, they had a way out, and none of them wanted to stay in that building any longer than they had to. The first level down was mostly storerooms, with nobody in any of them. As we went up the stairway to the main city level, we could hear firing outside. Nobody inside was shooting back. I unhooked my handphone. "'We're in,' I said, when Joe Kyvelson answered. Stop the shooting. We're coming up to the vehicle port. Might as well. Nobody's paying any attention to it, he said. The firing slacked off as the word was passed around the perimeter, and finally it stopped entirely. We went up into the open-arched vehicle port. It was barricaded all around, and there were a half-dozen machine guns set up, but not a living thing. We're going up, I said. They've all lambed out. The place is empty. You don't know that, Oscar chided. It might be bulging with Ravik's thugs, waiting for us to come walking up and be mowed down. Possible. Highly improbable, though, I thought. The escalators weren't running, and we weren't going to alert any hypothetical ambush by starting them. We tiptoed up, and I even drew my pistol to show that I wasn't being foolhardy. The big social room was empty. A couple of us went over and looked behind the bar, which was the only hiding place in it. Then we went back to the rear and tiptoed to the third floor. The meeting room was empty. So were the offices behind it. I looked in all of them, expecting to find Bish Ware's body. Maybe a couple of other bodies, too. I'd seen him shoot the tread snail, and I didn't think he'd die unpaid for. 
In Steve Ravick's office, the safe was open and a lot of papers had been thrown out. I pointed that out to Oscar, and he nodded. After seeing that, he seemed to relax, as though he wasn't expecting to find anybody anymore. We went to the third floor. Ravick's living quarters were there, and they were magnificently luxurious. The hunters, whose money had paid for all that magnificence and luxury, cursed. There were no bodies there, either, or on the landing stage above. I unhooked the radio again. "'You can come in now,' I said. "'The place is empty. Nobody here but us vigilantes.' "'Huh?' Joe couldn't believe that. "'How'd they get out?' "'They got out on the second level down.' I told him about the sleep-gassed guard. "'Did you bring him to? What did he say?' "'Nothing. We didn't. We can't.' You get sleep-gassed, and you sleep till you wake up. That ought to be two to four hours for this fellow. Well, hold everything. We're coming in. We were all in the social room. A couple of the men had poured drinks, or drawn themselves beers at the bar, and rung up no sale on the cash register. Somebody else had a box of cigars he'd picked up in Ravick's quarters on the fourth floor, and was passing them around. Joe and about two or three hundred other hunters came crowding up the escalator, which they had turned on below. "'You didn't find Bishware either, I'll bet,' Joe was saying. "'I'm afraid they took him along for a hostage,' Oscar said. "'The guard was knocked out with Walt's gas gadget that Bish was carrying.' "'Ha!' Joe cried. "'Bet you it was the other way round. Bish took them out.' That started an argument. While it was going on, I went to the communication screen and got the times, and told Dad what had happened. "'Yes,' he said. "'That was what I was afraid you'd find. Glenn Morell called in from the spaceport a few minutes ago. He says Mort Halstock came in with his car, and he heard from some of the workmen that Bish Ware, Steve Ravick, and Leo Belcher came in on the main city level in a jeep.' They claimed protection from a mob, and Captain Cortland's police are protecting them. End of chapter 18